The first time I remember making money from design work was designing MySpace profiles for people. So this is way before 2007 or whenever I actually claimed that I started freelancing. And I've, I've been doing this stuff for so long. Hey everyone, this is David back with another episode of the Designers FM podcast. Last week we spoke to my Australian friend Toma, and this week we have another special guest and good friend. He studied at the University of Lincoln in the UK and then made his way into design by starting as a freelancer in 2007 and ending up at Booking.com. He is a British designer living in Amsterdam. Currently he's working as a senior designer at Booking.com where he has been responsible for designing, both visually and strategically, the Booking Assistant and Booking's travel communities platforms. He has spoken about design at UXify in Bulgaria, UX Tartu in Estonia, MobiConf in Poland, and Epic Growth in Russia. His name is James Butler. Welcome, James. Thanks. Hello. Happy to be here. So first of all, like, what makes you uh, special as a designer and why should people listen to your story? I think I'm quite atypical and I have, I guess when I'm looking at design and I'm thinking at design, about design, sorry, I'm always thinking about how that translates into business terms. Uh, and that's something that I've tended to focus on a lot, especially over the last sort of six, seven years. It's really like what the work that I'm doing at the time translates into uh, a business or business goals or something in that regard. Uh, and then tying the sort of user experience aspect of that into the whole thing. So, yeah, interesting. So you you were saying that's something I focused on for the last uh, like six or seven years. Um, when did you start to figure out that this was a really important aspect of being a designer? To be honest, I think I I sort of knew about that a little bit from the start with all the freelance work that I was doing initially because that had to translate into business results. But I don't think I really knew that much about business during that particular time period. So it was only when I started to really research and learn more on the business side of things, which I'd say was probably around six, seven years ago. I had like a, a, a contract for a while with a, a, an agency that was doing a lot of work with startups in the US that were trying to build out their MVPs to raise seed funding. Uh, and I think during that process, I started learning a lot more about, okay, what actually goes into building a product and what types of things that business is looking for. And then how can I come in as a designer and match those two things together while still providing something that's valuable for an end user? That's interesting. I want to get to the, the topic of the difference between uh, the working for US startups versus maybe European startups and companies later on in the, in the, in the podcast. Um, but first, uh, you again, like last week, Thomas, you're not living and working in the country that you were born in. Like, uh, what, are, what are the things that you have to get used to the most? I wouldn't say that the culture between here and the UK is massively different. Uh, there's still a lot of similarities between the two things. And I think especially the area that I come from in the UK, we're also reasonably direct, although maybe not quite as direct as, as the Dutch in the Netherlands. I don't like it if it oversteps its mark and it becomes rude, but I think it's rare that that happens. Um, so I appreciate people just telling me what they want. Uh, so I think the biggest thing in terms of sort of living somewhere different is that you obviously don't have that friendship group that you grew up with 
so you don't have those strong friendship ties from the beginning. You have to come somewhere new. You have to uh, be quite outgoing in the in the first stages to try and meet people and get to know various different people. Uh, and I find that also lots of people come and go. So you're consistently sort of evolving your friendship groups and who you know. Some people see that as a as a bad thing, but I actually see it as a positive thing. Even if people leave, uh, then I have friends in other places. And even when I was at home, the sort of childship friendships that I have, a lot of those friends also went off to different areas of the country and did their own thing. So, and I think the other thing is obviously um, between here and England, there, there's a different language. But I think the, the level of English in somewhere like Amsterdam is so high that you rarely notice that being an issue. Was that a decision uh, or a decision factor in uh, moving to the Netherlands? Um, it's definitely something that I would have considered a lot more, I think. But also with somewhere like Amsterdam, I don't know if too many people know this, but when I was around like eight or nine and then 10 or 11, I did two exchange programs with school to the Netherlands. So I already had in mind anyway that if I had the opportunity to come back there at some point, then I would try and take it. Um, which obviously I don't have with somewhere like Paris or Barcelona or wherever, for example. But I think if that opportunity had still arisen, I would have just considered that, made a pros and cons list, and then gone from there. It's hard to say. Like with, with Amsterdam, there were lots of things that were pulling me here. I knew the city a little bit. I knew that I kind of wanted to, to come. The level of English was good. And then I was lucky enough to get an offer that was good enough also to bring me out here. So Yeah, that's awesome. I'm happy to have you here, of course. Uh, before we dive uh, into your career and your story, I'd like to go through 10 small questions with you. So the first one, simple, iOS or Android? iOS. And what do you think about the other? I don't think about it very often unless I'm designing for it. <laughs> but on a day-to-day basis, I'm so so ingrained in iOS. Uh, but yeah, it's it's what I've been using for the longest time, probably since I got rid of my BlackBerry. At some point within that period, I switched it up and had a Google Nexus 5, I think it was at the time. And I had it for about six months and then got rid of it and got an iPhone again. Yeah. Um, so uh, social networks, which do you use? And um, for what purpose do you use them? All of them for various purposes, I would say. I think probably the one that I use the most often on a day-to-day basis is Instagram. I've gotten a lot into photography over the last few years, so I do a lot in terms of photography on there. Um, I have a Facebook, and I have that for some sort of Facebook pages for businesses and the like. I try not to use it very often, to be honest, because I'm I'm not a huge fan, but I have it. I have LinkedIn, yeah, or all of them, basically. In fact, the, the only one that I don't, the only one that I don't have anymore is Twitter. I think I still have an account on there, but I just don't use it. I made a decision last year. I was finding a lot of negativity on Twitter that wasn't adding anything positive to my days. So I just made a decision to to come off there. And I haven't really looked back since. I think Tom mentioned also something last week about um, not feeling... Um, happier after using social media and therefore he decided to quit because it didn't make his life better. Yeah, exactly. That's how I was feeling with Twitter at the time. So I I got rid of that one. And I think the same could probably be said a little bit with some of the other social networks, but 
I do get some value out of Instagram, especially with the photography related aspect of it. Like looking at what other photographers are doing, posting some of my own photography on there. Um, Facebook, I think I use it so sort of rarely these days that I don't get much from it, but I also don't put much into it. Uh, so then switching to uh, work, um, have you ever worked in a different um, office plan than an open office? Uh, yes, but more just a closed office space. So, yeah, still an office. Which do you prefer? Like uh, open, cubicle, closed office? I, I would love to test out cubicles. I never have. I feel like I would get along really well with that. I, the open plan offices, for me personally, are so distracting that I, I struggle to sit at my desk and do work. I have to go somewhere else. If I really want to focus, I have to go somewhere else and just take myself away from that environment. Um, and do you think that a cubicle would give that focus space more easily? I think a little bit because it sort of separates everyone from each other in a sense. Not in the sense that they're completely separated like a physical office would. So there's still a chance that you could go and approach someone and do all the collaboration aspect that comes with that. But you get that little bit of additional privacy. Uh, way I think for me helps me focus a little bit more than if there's so many different things going off all around me that I'm constantly getting distracted or people are coming over and distracting you. I, for, for me personally, I really, really struggle in in these open plan office environments. There's there's way too much going on. Um, so moving on, favorite tool, Sketch or Figma or something else if you prefer that? I don't have a favorite tool. Honestly, they all do the same thing. And yeah. So yeah, I really don't care. If they were asking my advice on this, Figma, mostly for the collaboration aspect. It makes it easier, I think, for people to collaborate. And I, I find often with tools, people are always chasing the new thing, like the new, better thing. Most of them are pretty similar, fundamentally. The moving from Sketch to Figma didn't drastically change my life, I would say. No, no, it makes it makes some aspects of, of your work, I would say more effective or easier. As Tom mentioned, it's, it's nice to have all the different utilities in one tool if they are uh, working properly. To, to be honest, I would actually prefer more specialized tools that do one thing and do it really well than something that tries to do everything and doesn't do half the stuff very well at all. How many monitors do you use when you're designing? I just use my laptop screen. I've I feel like over the years, I've kind of gone from having multiple external monitors to to just a laptop, maybe because I've, at least within my current job, I've moved offices so many times that the burden of having to shift two external monitors or whatever at the same time as moving everything else just became not worth it. I think over the last few years, I've been all about trying to minimize the number of distractions. And maybe it goes back to the conversation we were just having about open plan office environments and this type of stuff. When you're designing, working, do you uh, use headphones or speakers for that same reason, getting to focus? And what kind of music do you listen to? Uh, I use headphones if I remember to use headphones. So sometimes yes, sometimes no. Generally, if I've gone to an area to really, really focus, then I'll put them in and listen to something just to make sure that people don't distract me. Still doesn't always work. But mostly I would say that I listen to um, trance music a lot of the time and then also some rock music. Music for me depends on what mood I'm in at the time. 
And I don't just like stick to those two genres. I like a lot of music, a wide variety of music, but they're probably the two most common ones that I keep coming back to. Next question. Uh, think great design. What's the first physical product that comes to mind? I guess my MacBook, because it's versatile. I can do a lot of things with it and I can take it wherever I want. So then shifting to um, digital product, again, think great design. What's the first digital product that comes to mind? For the most part, I really like Spotify. So yeah, Spotify was one of the first ones I used a long time ago already. I think during that time, I've probably used others just to test them out here and there and see how they work. And obviously, like if you're doing any kind of design research into something that might be relevant or similar, then I'll have played around with them. But the one that I use sort of on a daily basis is Spotify. So yeah. And what kind of user are you? Are you the one that goes to a specific album or do you have playlists set up? Generally for each of the genres that I like to listen to, I'll have a playlist set up that I continuously add to or remove things from as I like new songs or as things change. And for me to do that on that platform is super easy. Um, I like the fact that I can also download those things so I can listen to them offline. What do you think about their recommendation engine? I think for me, it gets confused because I listen to so many different music types that it finds it difficult to know what to recommend. So I generally shy away from those playlists and just use the ones that I've created myself. Do you have a specific time of day when you're most productive? Like early in the morning, evening? Yeah, either early in the morning or super late at night. I think that might be exactly what Thomas said as well. Yeah. Is there a difference between the two? No, I just find that there are two times of day when there are less distractions around again. So let's say I, I usually wake up pretty early, like 5.36, not always by choice. But that period of time in where I live now in Amsterdam, it's super quiet. So if I want to get up and sit down and focus on something, that's a great time for me to do it. And then once it hits sort of eight, nine, then everyone else is coming alive and there's noises around and distractions and maybe I'm hungry by that point. So I have to think about other things. Um, and then similarly, I guess, super late at night, it's when things have quietened down again. Uh, but that can also depend. Like if I'm, it's not too often these days that I'm awake really late because if I'm waking up at 6 a.m., then I'm usually tired by 10. Yeah, it's kind of like a recurring theme, making sure that there's as less distraction as possible. Uh, who had the most influence as you as a designer, on you as a designer? Myself. Okay, why is this? Is this because you've uh, refused to accept other people's opinions or? No, absolutely <laughs> not. Um, it sounds quite egotistical to say myself, I think. But to be honest, I have learned so much by putting the time and effort in myself to find that and learn that and whatever it's been that it's hard for me to necessarily look back at any of the sort of previous jobs that I've had and say, I learned so much from one singular person. Uh, so if I have to narrow it down, I think myself, but during that time, I've been learning little bits of things from so many different people um, that I've tried to utilize and take into my own process or my own sort of way of working that I, I would find it really hard to, to narrow that down to to some one singular person that's had a super strong influence on anything that I've done. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm saying that because I'm the one that's had to put the effort in to learn the things that I wanted to learn. And yes, I've taken things from 
various people throughout that, but it's ultimately just come back to me and my drive to get better at what I do. And I, to be honest, early on in my career as well, I didn't really have a super, super strong mentor or anything like that in, in those early stages that really took me under their wing or did any of this stuff. I had some great people that helped me get started and helped me like find my way in, in design. Um, but yeah, not, not anyone that really like sat down with me and worked with me and taught me a bunch of stuff. It's for the most part been self-taught and from my own uh, drive to learn something new or get better at something. Uh, and I, I started with design at such a young age as well. Like even before I started doing anything professionally that I think like a lot of the things and a lot of the fundamentals I learned, I learned when I was like 10 or 11 years old. Yeah. I think that's a nice segue into like the the first chapters of your story. Um, so you mentioned that 10 or 11 was the first time you got into design. Could you tell me a little bit more about uh, what kind of time that was and what kind of things made you go into design? My dad worked with computers his whole life, basically. So I don't remember not having a computer. I feel like I've always had one. Um, obviously, I don't remember like the super, super young stages of that when I was like three, four, whatever it might have been. And bearing in mind, like it's probably common now for everyone to grow up with a computer. Back then, 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago, it wasn't common. Uh, so I had a computer. Uh, at some point, I remember finding pieces of software like Microsoft front page, uh, things that you could use online like GeoCities and those types of things and starting to really like use those things to create at that age. Even for a while, I was using Notepad to write HTML and CSS. Do you remember the first computer or the first OS that you worked with? First OS that I remember was probably Windows 95 or 98 or something like that. Yeah, it, it was it was simple, I guess, at those times. There were not as many features. It was pretty simple to use. I remember using like the early versions of Photoshop and Front Page and whatever it was to create stuff at that moment in time. It brings back a lot of nostalgia if I think about it. Being like 10 or 11 or however old I was, I was probably creating some kind of Pokemon-related crap. I know that in GeoCities at some point, I created like a Pokemon fan club GeoCities website that I was pretty I was pretty proud of at the time. I wish I could find it back now just to see how awful it is, but it's forever gone, I think. Yeah. So um, moving into your first job as a freelance designer then, how did that happen and at what age? The first time I remember making money from design work was designing MySpace profiles for people. So this is way before 2007 or whenever I actually claim that I started freelancing and I've, I've been doing this stuff for so long, but they're, they're the first times that I can really, really remember getting paid to do something. And it was not a lot of money at that time. It was from friends that didn't know how to create their own custom MySpace page. First official job as a freelance designer. Um, did that come naturally with like taking on more diverse jobs? That one was at, at university. I was working with the student radio station to work on their sort of graphics and website based stuff that's the first one that i remember from that time as well after that i had like various different clients where i was just creating small scale websites things like that for local businesses no, nothing major a lot of still sort of graphic design style work at that point in time as well like creating banners 
I, w- I wasn't getting paid a lot of money for any of the things that I was doing back then. <laughs> no, but I think like having the experience to, to work on those things and being able to, to try and learn to get better as designer is super. Yeah, it, it was definitely varied and it gave me a lot of experience in terms of dealing with different types of people because I had different types of clients. It gave me a lot of experience on trying to write contracts and things so that you could get paid on time. Yeah. All the problems that I think freelancers still probably struggle with sometimes. But I think that the main thing was just the variation, just working with different types of people, getting to understand what they liked and what they didn't like. I wouldn't say a lot of it back then was very user focused. I think I learned some of that stuff a lot later. We transitioned a little bit into like your next like series of jobs for agencies. Um, was that the time that you started quote unquote, growing up as a designer? Yeah, I think so. I started learning more about the sort of business side of things, the budget side of things, uh, what you could do within a client's budget and what you couldn't do um, became a bit more real rather than just me charging someone in a freelance capacity to build a website. It was more like, okay, this company is working with this agency. They have this much budget. Also sort of like billable hours and managing your time and that sort of stuff played a big part during that period. Uh, I was not working with small companies anymore for these this period. They were all sort of either national in the sense of England and the UK or multinational companies through those agencies. So, uh, And a lot of the work was varied as well. Like It wasn't necessarily that we were just doing websites. It could be we were doing uh, websites for people, apps for people. We might, within some agencies, have been asked to just do a, a research project on what they could do, um, which meant that I got a, a lot more involved in the research side of things uh, and looking into user experience and everything that went with that. So throughout working with these various agencies, I think I learned different bits at different points in time. Uh, and obviously I had like a lot of different people then to pull bits of information from and learn little bits here and there. Uh, you started working for US-based startups. Was this that period of time? Yeah, that was included in this sort of period of agency work where this particular agency was more focused on working with those types of startups and building out their MVPs and then helping them eventually raise seed money through their first version of their product. Could you see that it's a big difference between working for a US-based startup and a maybe more classical European startup? There's definitely a difference. Like when I was working more with the European companies, I don't know if they had that same mindset at that point in time like how trying to build out an mvp trying to pitch that to investors so yeah the whole process was quite different yeah yeah and they're still like all of those companies that i worked with during that time were still trying to create valuable products for people but in doing so they were still trying to raise money so that they could still provide that value or greater value to the people that they were trying to provide it for there was just more pressure i guess on the money side of things than anything that I ever experienced within Europe, where they they might not have even seen that as a path or as an option. It was very sort of alien, at least in the area that I grew up in. That's uh yeah, it's it's completely different than your uh, than your next uh, story after it, uh, which is Booking.com in Amsterdam. So, um, how did you end up at Booking? With Booking, I was just looking for another sort of contract role or another agency position or something during that time period and i saw the job being advertised in amsterdam 
and I thought I would apply for it and see what happens. And to be honest, I was not even expecting to hear anything back. I come from a super small village, so even the thought of moving to another country to do this sort of job didn't seem like it was possible for someone like me. So I applied, I ended up hearing back from them like super quickly, I think. Did the phone interview stuff, so I, I made my way through that. I wasn't smart enough like Toma to look up the questions on Glassdoor initially, so they were a surprise to me. But I made it through, I think, through sort of my experience, my HTML, CSS skills that they were looking for were... And then, yeah, they flew me out to Amsterdam for the interview, back-to-back interviews on the same day, and then they offered me the job the same day as well. I took a, a little bit of time to think about that, but I think I knew in my head that I was already going to go. What did you know about booking before this whole hiring process started? Not a whole lot. I hadn't really used it very much. I was more the kind of person that would buy package deal holidays or I just couldn't afford to go on holidays. So I was not using something like booking very often. Obviously, before going into the interviews, I did my research. So I looked into the product, started trying to use it myself, didn't book anything through it because the time period was too short, but I I had a look around. I think that whole sort of travel space just interested me a lot. I was interested in travel myself. So working for a travel company that helped other people to travel seemed like something that would be a, a like a, a positive thing. And what kind of things did you work on or uh, until now at Booking? Yeah, when I first joined, I joined what was called the localization team. They were trying to localize the website for various regions around the world. It was interesting. I got to learn a lot of stuff about different areas of the world that I didn't know before. So like the Middle East or Africa, for example, and how people travel there uh, and doing some of the research stuff around that. I know that we were doing a lot of stuff, a lot of research during that time around sort of the cheaper Android phones and areas of Asia that didn't have strong connections and connectivity for their mobile networks and older phones. So there was a lot of input into that. Things around text messages. After that, I moved on to messaging related products within Booking, which is where I and how I ended up working on the booking assistant chatbot, kind of a chatbot slash messaging area where you could get help around anything related to your booking or speak to the property that you booked with. And then after that, I moved on to a project called Travel Communities. It was a totally brand new product, so we didn't have anything before we started designing and building that. It's a product basically where travelers can ask questions to one another, get information and advice around a destination or uh, something within a des- destination like restaurants, attractions, whatever it might be. Yeah. And what were, what were the biggest lessons you've learned uh, there? I think in, in a big company, there's a lot of times where you're trying to get buy-in from other people or do a lot of stakeholder management because you might be stepping on other people's toes or someone else might have thoughts around what to do with a particular area that you have to really try and communicate well amongst everyone. Uh, And I think with building a new product like Travel Communities, there's as much effort that goes on to promoting that internally in the first stages as there is externally promoting that product as well. Because the first people, especially in a a big company like Booking, where there's at least 10,000 employees, that's a great user base to try and start a product with but you have to make them aware that this is a new product and that they can use it. Um, So there was a lot of trying to promote these things internally that with travel communities, I hadn't had to spend too much time on that sort of stuff previously. We did some of it with the booking assistant and the messaging related project, but the company was also quite a lot smaller at that point in time. And it felt much easier to communicate those things to a wider bunch of people. By the time we were working on travel communities, the, the company was so much larger that there's so many things happening that it's easy for everyone else to to not even know that that's a thing. 
having a good communication strategy internally could be the difference between making your product succeed externally or not. And I think with, with something like travel communities, lots of other teams see the potential in that and want to collaborate. But if you're just a small team working on that, then you don't necessarily always have the full resources to be able to facilitate that collaboration, which can be challenging, but also frustrating sometimes too, because you want to provide this value to other people. You want to create something that everyone else wants to be a part of. I must feel like finding a balance between in the in the beginning, holding off the boat a little bit, and then at some point transition more into like opening up and uh, getting internal buy-in to get the ball rolling a little bit. A good uh, segue into um, the next topic, which is uh, public speaking, because you're mentioning that communication is a big part of uh, working in a big company like Booking. Uh, But when did you start public speaking? Was this at Booking or earlier? On a very small scale earlier. So in one of the agencies that I worked for, for a brief period in time, my manager at the time, a guy called Chris, encouraged me to do that sort of stuff internally in terms of presenting my work. There was still sort of a very casual small scale thing so nothing crazy and i'd done a little bit of it and it was definitely outside of my comfort zone but i think the majority of the stuff that i did in terms of public speaking came through working or booking and what do you what would you say to the designers or other people that are listening and that are scared shitless to even stand in front of 10 people and really want to master the skill of public speaking but just don't know where to overcome their fear of going onto a stage you just have to at some point you have to go for it if the desire to get good or get better at something like that is there then you have to try and if you're still too scared then you probably don't have a strong enough desire to want to do it so you maybe need to rethink that and maybe that's not your platform and you might be better off writing instead for example for me i started presenting things within booking to small groups Um, one of the great things when i got there was that There was already something called design jams, I think they were called at the time, where you could present your work to a group of other designers or product managers or whoever wanted to attend. And it was a pretty casual format again. Um, So that's really where I got started and really got going in terms of presenting to people. Uh, And that helped a little bit because a lot of the faces that you knew were familiar. You knew that they were not going to try and say anything bad to you or do anything bad to you. They might have some questions about what you just presented to them, but that's natural. And they're friends, so you can have that conversation with them. And then when you start getting into the bigger conferences and things, then at least for me, after a certain number of people or certain size audience, you don't even notice anymore. So... For me, presenting to 200 people is exactly the same as presenting to 1,000 people. Maybe it gets, I haven't done anything like beyond the thousands. So once you've got 10,000 or something, maybe it gets crazier. I don't know. Um, but generally, like there's a reason why you're talking about that stuff. And there's a reason why people are there to listen to it. So if you can connect with that in some way, then you're just going to have a good time. This fear comes from the fact that they get up on stage and think, why the fuck should people listen to my story? My story is shit. Uh, I'm not the best person to talk about this topic all those thoughts come to mind and that of course doesn't help the anxiety of going onto a stage and practice public speaking yeah for sure but i think everyone that started out in that situation has had the same experience they've all thought that at some point in time i still think that sometimes when i give my talks Um, but you know what you know you have your experience and i think if you go out there and try and have fun with it as well then the audience tends to bounce off that as well they can see that you're sort of enjoying it or enjoying what you're talking about. So yeah, then you get a lot more sort of interaction as well from the audience. How did this process go of 
getting you to the conference? Yeah, so mostly they, well, initially, I think I got a bit of a helping hand getting onto the conference circuit through um, just colleagues that maybe had done that stuff before and they'd reached out to them and they couldn't do it for some reason. So they recommended me as they knew I had an interest. So I had a couple that came through just emails where they'd got my email from someone else. And then I had a few come through LinkedIn where they reached out to me on there. I think if, if someone's really wanting to get into that environment, I think one of the good things to do is to get a good photo of you speaking somewhere, a somewhat professional looking photo of you speaking. Uh, that helps with the number of people that are going to reach out to you as well. And once you've spoken at one, then conference organizers are always looking to see who's spoken where. Uh, and that also helps too. You're going to sort of speak to a group of your colleagues at work, maybe ask one of them to bring a camera and take a good photo of it. It, it helps you as well. I think it helps with your confidence because then you've got something that you can share in other places and talk about the thing that you've just spoken about with other people and get more sort of reactions and feedback that then you can bring into reworking the, the talk that you're giving. Yeah. So segueing then into, um, into another uh, conference, actually, um, you've been to Epicureans, um, but it's not really your typical conference. It's organized by, by uh, Dan Petty. Uh, could you explain, first of all, what Epicureans is? Yeah. So Epicureans is kind of a non-conference conference, and that is not a great explanation. So <laughs> at least the, the version of Epicureans that I went to, a lot of the time that you spent there, it was over multiple days. So we actually went to Yosemite in the US. A lot of the time during the day is spent just doing activities with other people. So we did climbing, hiking, etc. Um, and I think through that, you got to really closely get to know people. And then the evenings were set aside for talks from various people, but it was more in kind of a campfire style setting, I suppose, than you're sat in a room somewhere with someone projecting a PowerPoint slideshow and using a clicker. It was more real conversations with real people um, and very honest conversations too. What kind of people do you meet there? Yeah, I met, at that particular conference, I met a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. So there were quite a few uh, people that were in the early stages of their career that really wanted to learn from others. Um, at the same time, I met um, people that were running their own profitable companies that were there that got a lot of value out of just being part of the community and and sort of giving back in that sense. So there were lots of different people to sort of ask questions to, but also pass some knowledge onto yourself as well. Uh, everyone really came together, had like a great time doing all those activities and really like getting away from necessarily just um, the superficial stuff that you might hear in a, in a PowerPoint presentation slide for 20 minutes and really trying to like get to core details or like, yeah, really interesting aspects of what it is that we're doing. So yeah, I don't know if the conference is still running. I know that Dan said he was doing the last one and I think someone was taking it over, but I haven't heard much. But also, I think one of the great things about Epicurus is that they have this sense of, of everything that you speak about there stays there. De definitely very real stories, real connections with those people. They're approachable as well. So I think one of the other good things was that they limited the amount of people that could go to keep that element there. Um, so you're not in a room with a thousand people. 
there's like 75 max or something and yeah you don't feel like you do sometimes at other conferences where you've just sat through a 20 minute pitch for someone's company what do you take home with you when going there except for um like of course meeting great people for me that that was the biggest thing because it massively opened up my network and there's such a strong design community within that that it, it's been great. Like I've made friends for life just from spending a few days with some people in Yosemite, people that I still talk to on a very regular basis. Yeah. And did, would, this, would this happen if you would go to a normal conference or regular conference, more like traditional setup? It can happen. Like there's elements of networking at those conferences, but I haven't found anything to be as strong as it was from Epicurrence. The goal of the, the conference, Epicurrence, probably is also more towards meeting real people. And having real conversations. Yeah, I think so. Or I think at least it evolved into that. From what I know from Dan, I think it started out as an excuse to go snowboarding with a bunch of other people that were in the same field, uh, which I think also is a, is an amazing reason to do something like that. It's not often that people look at things in that way. And I think that's one of the things that makes someone like Dan a special person. That leaves me to um, the final questions of this podcast. Uh, so first of all, thank you for telling your story. I think it's really interesting how you've uh, gone through different, I think, uh, aspects of the business and evolved yourself uh, as a public speaker and uh, to the person you are today. Um, so my first final question is, um, if we should get anyone on the show, who should we try to get on the show? Preferably alive because it's easier, but if it's a dead person, I want to also leave that possibility open. Can I give you two at the top of my head? So first one, you also know him, a guy called Pedro Marquez. A previous colleague of mine now works for Adjun. Absolutely great guy. Has a lot to talk about, a lot of knowledge. And then the other one I want to give is um, someone called Svetlina Lazarova. She's someone that I've spoke to quite a lot, helped a little bit in terms of her own public speaking. She's a senior product designer at falcon.io. Absolutely great person, fantastic illustrator, has got a lot of knowledge as well from all the product work that she's done. I think she would be a great candidate to come on here as well. Awesome. I'm going to write them both down. Um, to be completely honest, Pedro was already on the list. So that brings me to the, the final question. Um, what song should we add to the playlist? Uh, I'm going to go with one called, I think it's called Yes, I Can by Bix, B-I-X-X. And um, that concludes this podcast. So thank you, James, for you. taking the time. And um, I wish you all the best and uh, be safe, be healthy in this period. For the listeners at home, I will talk to you next time. Bye.